Hey, it's really my joy if you can go ahead and find a seat, please. Enough of the visitation. Enough fellowship. <laughs> no, it's wonderful. It's my joy to uh, have in the house today two very, very special people to us, Harold and Linda Eberly. And uh, they are, they've given their lives to reach out into a lot of different areas of life, but particularly the Muslim communities in different parts of the world. They're lovers of the presence of God and lovers of his church. So would you welcome these two wonderful people here this morning. Thank you. Your case came open. It did. Yeah. You can lose your batteries if the case door comes open. So, we are so blessed to be here. I don't know if my... So, maybe somebody can help me. There we go. Thank you. Um, As David mentioned... We've been ministering some in the Middle East, uh, among the Muslim-dominated areas. And before we teach the Word, we always like to give an update to Americans about what's going on in the Middle East. Um, just a real quick thing. We like to show one photo of some of the gatherings that are going on. So, here's one. This is Khalid Naz from Faisalabad, Pakistan. And he's been for about seven years going to rural areas. Uh, They have really big cities. They have like 10 New York cities in this little country. They're a little bit like India where people pile up on each other. But Khalid goes out to rural areas and gets between 10,000 to 200,000 people that had never gathered together or heard about Jesus. He goes to Taliban and ISIS areas and... And risks his life. He's amazing. About 40 to 50% of the people raise their hand wanting to bow to King Jesus. So about every six weeks. About every six weeks he has one of these gatherings. Rents the largest stadiums or open fields in the nation. Wherever he is. Um, And then we have another leader we also work with. So they alternate about every six weeks. The other one has larger meetings. By the cities. About 200,000 to just over a million Muslims show up every six weeks, wherever he is. Um, And then we have a leader there who we work with, Ben Nichols, right now. He had two gatherings this weekend and had just over a million Muslims showed up. um, And over half of them raised their hands to receive Christ, too. So that's regularly going on. And it's been going on for about nine years now. And tell me why it's been going on. Personally, I believe that since Jesus Christ sat down on his throne 2,000 years ago, the Father has been making every enemy bow, and that there is a progressive advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. It will continue to grow till it fills the earth. And as it advances, the Father said to the Son, sit here, Son, till I make every enemy a footstool for your feet. The last enemy itself be in death. But I understand that there are Demonic influences that blind portions of the world. And when those bow, then we can preach the gospel. When most of us were children, over half the world was under communism. I believe that demonic spirit lost its authority to rule half the world. 
We're still conquering it. We're still fighting against it. But when it bowed, that half of the world opened up. I believe the spirit of Islam is now bowing. And now, amen, we know statistics are somewhere between 17,000 and 30,000 Muslims every day are receiving Jesus Christ. On national Al-Qaeda, international Al-Qaeda, Al-Ghazira television station. That's the Muslim television station all over the world. They're recently interviewing leading Muslims, and they're bemoaning the fact that they're losing 17,000 Muslims per day to born-again Christianity. Now, that's their numbers. Our numbers are closer to 30,000 a day. So somewhere between 17,000 and 30,000 Muslims every day are committing their lives to Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting. They, have, they bow to a God that they are slaves of. And there's obedience, you know, it's, it's scary obedience, right, you know? And um, so to hear there's a God that's a father that loves them is like totally foreign to them. So they're, they're getting a relationship with someone that loves them, which is so crazy. Yeah, so we've been involved now for about 11 years in that part. Previous to that, um, 17 years in Africa, and then preceding to that, Philippines. So this has been the most largest harvest we've ever seen. And just to be part of this, we are not the ones up in front of the crowd. We do most of all just raise finances and believe in our leaders who are over there. Tell them they can do it. Tell them to go for it um, and release them and help them to succeed in those meetings. I, it's rare that Harold knows where his phone is, and if he does know, it's more than likely not charged. Yes. <laughs> but somehow, when they call from Pakistan, he answers the phone. Yes. So, you know, that's, it's a big investment for him. <laughs> <laughs> so now you just got a picture of me and what's going on in Pakistan, okay? He loves him. He, he's like, I can hear his voice. I'm in the other side of the house, and all of a sudden, brother, how are you doing? I said, he's talking to somebody in Pakistan. Yes. So there are a lot of things going on over there. Um, we have a brother right now who's working with the slaves. There are two million slaves in Pakistan. Um, we've got a goal to see all slaves set free within eight years from this time. Um, we've got some plans in progress where they are being set free by thousands every year. So that's been going on. Linda was in Pakistan without me last. Um, that was her first trip without me. Yeah. November, December. Yes, which was Got scary to spend me. eight days touching people in the brickyards, and that's the place where you go, you go to a brickyard to get a loan, about 200 bucks. Somebody goes to the hospital. But in order to pay off the loan, you have to work in the brickyard. And you work 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and pretty soon you you're never pay off your debt, and you are charged room and board, which is just a little dirt square. And um, then you get married in the brickyard. Your kids are born in the brickyard, and they get married in the brickyard. And pretty, it's pretty generational. And most of them don't know how to read or write, never been to school. About 95% have never had any education at all. So it's, it's very uh, – I got to go in and, and, and be in their abode. I'd heard about him, seen him, pointed to a brickyard, met people out that had gotten free from the brickyard, but I hadn't been in their space. So I was really, really blessed to go spend eight days touching people. 
And so in December, uh, they also gathered together slaves. And she had one gathering of about 20,000 slaves that she spoke to. to. But that was the first time most of those slaves have ever seen a car, have ever been outside of a slave yard, have ever done anything that you and I do every day. They got to come out of their slavery bondage to gather for a presentation of the gospel. So that's what we get to do. We're blessed. So we do love being here with you. Um, Just every so often that we get to come see you and see what's going on here. Um, Love to see transitions and growth and progress. Um, And then we're also, of course, going through the same things. And I always have something on my heart beating, hoping that I can impart to you. And today's no different. In particular, I want to speak to you about the conflict going on in our country where there is strong resistance to Christianity, that there is in educational fields, in politics, in government, um, news media, much that is oppressing a lot of what we believe. I'd like to talk about that from the perspective of Christianity having a positive influence on society And the reason we need to talk about that is because there are some people, especially in the holding the reins of higher education, that are trying to convince everybody that Christianity has had no positive effect on civilization. It is either non-existent or negative influence upon civilization. And they are effectively rewriting history, and many people are starting to believe that. I would like to present to you another side things that Christianity itself is responsible for within Western civilization that most of us have never even thought of. But I've been working on another book on this subject, so it's easy for me just to pick out various topics about this. And I will put it in certain terms. Like the word theology, I want you to be comfortable with. For some people, that word theology is scary. You picture scholars in closed rooms talking philosophical ideas. That's not what the word theology should mean. Theology simply means your thoughts about God. Everyone's a theologian. Everyone thinks about God. Atheists think about God. Every one of you have a theology right now, and your theology matters. In preaching from every pulpit, Across America today, every church is presenting ideas that have come out of theology. Of course, we understand Christian theology. That is what we believe in, the God of Abraham. And then from that family lineage, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes into the world. So our theology has not only influenced our lives, but I'd like you to see how it's influencing civilization Western civilization, and then the world, because we're trying to present truth, even when Christians are under attack, they need to hear the other side of the story, not just the bad side. And indeed, there are areas where Christianity has had some negative influence, but the positive far outweighs the negative. So let me present some of these things to you. First of all, I'd like you to consider the fact that Um, Every religion gives values to the society that holds that religion. In fact, our most fundamental values of every civilization in the earth, their most fundamental values come from its religion. Now, 
in order to see that, I'd like to think back before Christianity and give you an example. And when we talk about Western civilization, we're usually going back more than 2,000 years. Usually historians talk about the foundation of Western civilization being when the Greek Empire ruled around the Mediterranean Sea, then the Roman Empire. So that's usually considered the foundation of Western civilization, the Greek Empire followed by the Roman Empire, and a little area within the Roman Empire is this area called Judea, where the Jews live. And out of Judaism, out of Jewishism, Judeo-ethics, Christianity is born. After Jesus dies and resurrects, his disciples migrate out of that region and begin to spread across the Roman Empire. So in Western civilization, historians primarily when they talk about our foundation of Western thought will go back to the merger of Greek thought, Roman thought, and Christianity coming from the foundation of the Jewish tradition. And there's really a merger of those three ways of thinking. Now, of course, there were other influences upon our civilization, but those are considered the foundational. So when we go back to that time period, 2,000 years plus, I could even pick out other civilizations that weren't part of that. And a good example for me is like the Vikings. In the Scandinavian regions, they worshipped their primary god was Odin. He was considered the god of war. His son was Thor, the guy with a big hammer. He was the one with the temper, and he was doing war. He was a violent figure, and he was thought to crush anything in his way. Now, with those being the two primary gods of the Vikings, that has a profound influence on the civilization of the Vikings. If your god is a god of war, you will value war. You will be a warlike people. That is what we see historically with every people group. However you conceive of your gods becomes part of the value system of that society. Now, it's a back and forth motion in the fact that people have some concept of a god by their experiences. They give that god credit for what they see in the world around them. But they also help design their god assign the values they most have to the God they want to worship, but then it becomes a back and forth exchange. You design your God that matches your values, but then your values conform more and more to the God you've designed. You literally are having an exchange with the gods that you are creating, and that has actually formed most ancient civilizations And the gods they conceived of profoundly influenced their very character, society's value. Now, we not only see our values coming from our theology, being our understanding of God, but historically, teaching theology has been the most effective way of passing values from one generation to the next generation. For example, if you can picture the Vikings... 2,000 years ago, sitting around a fire and parents teaching their children about Odin and Thor. Now, they had some other gods also. They had some gods who were known for having good families, good family values, gods of fertility. They had some gods um, who had gods of compassion. 
But when they were sitting around the fire talking about their gods to their children, they were teaching theology, they were imparting their values. When you teach theology, it has historically been the most effective way any civilization passes its values to the next generation. Teach about your gods, and you're passing your values on. But a generation that does not teach the next generation its values, its gods, is handicapping itself and restricting its ability to pass on its values to the next generation. So when we consider, why is this important? Why are these subjects important? Because number one, we get most of our fundamental values from our concept of God. And number two, our primary way of passing our values, our fundamental values on to the next generation is by teaching who God is, teaching theology. Now, most of us don't think that way, but for the people who are invested in trying to understand how civilizations are governed, they have come to a common understanding, oh yeah, that's how society is governed, and values primarily, that's where they originate, that's how they're passed on from one generation to the next. But now let's go over to the Hebraic society. The understanding of God primarily is founded in the Old Testament. And we would build a theology from the Old Testament, and it did impact, of course, the Hebrews and then the Jews. Jews and Hebrews, the Hebrews being the ancient forefathers of the Jewish people, very simply put definition, they have a structure, a concept of God that is structured around a God revealed in the Old Testament, and it's very much firmly set in the God of Mount Sinai. That image of God of Mount Sinai was so profoundly impacting a God who descended upon a mountain, the mountain quaked, fire and lightning, and then God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. That image of God made it very clear to the Hebrew people what God wanted, what he expected of humanity. Ten Commandments, it's written in stone. Now, for most of people who do not like religion, do not like going to church, and have kind of put it on a shelf, the concept of God commanding humanity to do something is foreign and almost ridiculous in their mind. It's one thing to believe in God. It's an entirely different thing to now not only believe in him, but to obey his commands. But the Jewish people embraced that concept. In fact, they loved the commands of God. That's sometimes difficult for us today to understand because we're far removed from those commands. But I'd like you to put yourself back at that time in history. So we're talking about 2,000 years before Jesus. Almost every nation has its own gods. But imagine you have a God who's never told you what he wants, what she wants. You have a God who's up there, but they've never given you any indication of what behavior they want out of you. That would be like a child living in a home, and its parents never tell them, never tell the children, this is what I want, this is what I want you to do. That child, those children, would never know, am I pleasing or am I displeasing? To live in a world 
where you know there's a God, but that God has never communicated what they desire, is to live in a world in confusion, wandering, directionless. The very idea that God gave them information about this is how I want you to act was an act of grace on God's part. It was a way of coming at peace that now I know how to live. Because I know there's a God, if he was not communicating to me, we would be lost, not knowing if at the end of it we're all going to be torched, if we're going to be tortured, or what's going to happen to us. But knowing how he wants us to behave was for the Hebrew people uh, something of love. That they so treasured, God has revealed to us what he wants. Meaning, he cares enough for us to tell us what he wants. Now, when we start talking about that concept on Mount Sinai, that profoundly influenced their concept of God, and it was passed generation to generation to generation, and very strong in Hebrew thought, is that parents were to speak to their children about God while they walked through the streets, while they did business, or while they ate their meals. God instructed them, constantly be telling your children about who I am and what you've experienced with me. And he promised that if you do this, your children will prosper. Their enemies will be defeated. And they will live with vision and purpose. Now, if we see that's God's promise... That if we teach our children who God is, then the opposite of that be. If we do not teach our children who God is, we would, in some degree, expect the opposite results. That they would not be a prosperous people. The next generation would be confused about what are right values. That they would not have vision, knowing where they're supposed to walk out their lives. But now that... In understanding of God, not only influences the Jewish people, it is today coming from the God of Abraham. The God of Abraham is accepted by over half the earth today as the God who exists. We've got Jews, Christians, and Muslims who all accept the God of Abraham as the one true God. Of course, we all add on different values to this, but the starting principle of the God of Abraham, out of 8 billion people in the world, well out of 5 billion, more than 5 billion of them, claim the God of Abraham is the true God. That God then, his values are strongly impacting the values of civilization. More than any other God, because that God is the God accepted by most of humanity. I want to now give you some examples of how that God and his values have come into Christianity and into Western civilization. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's building on the God of Abraham and that concept. But he increases, enriches the understanding of God. He brings in that it's not just obeying commands, but he gives an understanding that this God wants to forgive our sins. Loves us deeply. But he's also interested in us in not just keeping commands, but he's more interested in our heart, having compassion, having forgiveness for one another, and walking with each other. In fact, the commands that God gave, even the Old Testament, the vast majority of them are, 
how people should relate to each other and how they should treat each other. There was no other God at that time in history that showed any interest in how people treat others. Now, consider, for example, the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. They worshiped the same gods, but by different names. We've got Zeus and Poseidon and Mars and Venus and Epaphrodite. We've got all the gods that the Greeks and Romans had, but those gods were up there. They all had their own ambitions. They had their jealousies. They were at war with each other. And the only interest those gods had in humanity was if their interest crossed paths with our interest. Other than that, the gods of the Greeks and Romans had no interest in what humans do. Unless somehow humans can be used to further their ends, then they are not interested. Along comes the God of Abraham, who is interested in people. He's interested in how people treat each other. Most of the commands that he gives are commands related to how we should treat each other. That was an entirely different God than had ever been conceived of by any other nation. Outside of the Greeks and Romans, most of the other nations had God or gods, but those gods also were into their own ambitions and only could be troubled by humanity primarily if some human offered enough sacrifices to get their attention. Other than that, gods were too far away to be interested in human dynamics. But the God of Abraham was not that God. And when Jesus comes to reveal, he extends and enriches that understanding that this God is interested in forgiving our sins. He's interested in us calling him father. He's interested in actually treating us as his children. That was revolutionary. Now here's the first value that we see coming into Western civilization, the value of compassion. Now, here's a value that was not held in Greek or Roman uh, Empire times. The Romans, above all else, valued people, individuals, for what they can contribute to the state. If you contribute to the state, you are a valuable individual. In the city of Rome, during the life of Jesus, over Over 40% of the city of Rome was made of slaves. But the Roman citizens disdained anyone who was not above slavery, but also they disdained the sick, the poor, and the weak. They disdained them. In fact, it was considered a weakness for a Roman citizen to show compassion. Now, we have a hard time understanding the extent of this value that the Romans had, but I can give you an example from the last century, like with Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, Hitler had many of his soldiers trained to obliterate compassion from their nature. That they believed they could only control control of the world if his top soldiers and those who were leading the soldiers under them, the leaders, had absolutely no compassion in their nature. Therefore, one of the practices that Hitler wanted his soldiers to practice was to catch our allies, soldiers who were on our side, and especially in the wintertime, they would strip them naked 
and the soldiers who were the leaders of soldiers would pour ice water on them until they froze our soldiers to death. They were trained to laugh while they did it. They were trained to feel nothing. And their even ability to be promoted within the Nazi army was to show that you have no compassion. And if you wanted to be promoted to leadership, you had to prove that you have no compassion because it was the value that we could only rule the world if we have no compassion. That's an example of what Rome was like. During the first century, you've got a compassionless society, but now you have Christians coming out of Judea. And their value of compassion comes primarily from the God of Abraham and the person of Jesus Christ. They were known, Christians were known, for wasting their lives with the weak and the sick and the poor. They were mocked, they were ridiculed, and often that was the grounds on which they would be taken prisoners and hauled off Christians to be killed because these are those Christians who are wasting their lives and not contributing to the state. They're wasting their lives. They should be disdaining with the rest of us having the same values. But because they have a different God, they have different values. Now, Christianity grows very gradually for the first 300 years. It was not until the 400s when Christianity begins exploding in growth. In 313, Christianity is made legal. Before that time, Christians live as a minority. And their view of themselves, their self-identity, primarily was, we are followers of Jesus, and we are a community of followers of Jesus. Most simple definition, how did they think of themselves? We are following the teachings of Jesus, and we are a community who takes care of each other. Now, that was the concept primarily predominant in Christian thought for the first 300 years. Then Christianity is made legal in 313. But in 376, the Roman Empire makes Christianity the official religion. All other religions were made illegal. Christianity explodes in growth throughout the Roman Empire. Now it is the only religion that's allowed. Then in the year 410, the city of Rome is destroyed. That begins the downfall of the Roman Empire. So while the Roman Empire is decaying, falling apart, Christianity is now coming forth. Now imagine that that historic event never happened. Imagine that the Roman Empire outlived Christianity. If the Roman Empire had outlived Christianity today, you would live in a very harsh, cruel society. It would not have the values of taking care of the weak, the sick, the elderly, It would not have the values that you take for granted. Where did your value for compassion come from? It came from Christianity, and it was implanted within the early Christians by Jesus Christ. That value won out. That value overcame the Roman compassionless society that it displaced. Now, when Christianity began to grow rapidly in the 400s, expanding, and the Roman Empire began to fall. 410 was the year that the cities destroyed. When the city was destroyed, it was tribes from the north coming down, 
Most of the city is destroyed, but in particular, the government of Rome is destroyed. The people who were leading the Roman Empire scattered or they were killed. Because there was a vacuum of leadership at that time, the governmental leaders are now gone, the religious leaders in Rome rose up. Because of the vacuum, they found a place to assert themselves. Simultaneously with that, there was a theology that had impact upon you and I today and all of Europe for the next thousand years. There was a guy named Augustine, who was the most influential theologian of that period when Christianity was just taking over Europe at that time because the Roman Empire was falling. Augustine has two primary doctrines that became seeded into European thought. Number one, all people are fallen, meaning you are so sinful, you cannot help yourself. All people are prone to sin to such an extent that they are victims, they are helpless. The second doctrine was called all millennialism. Now, all millennialism is a certain view about the reign of Jesus Christ on earth. You've read in Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about the millennial reign of Jesus. Augustine introduced this way of thinking, and he did it because the city of Rome fell. So he wrote a book called The City of God, in which he explained that God was not going to use the government leaders in Rome because now they're gone. But God wants to use the religious leaders in Rome to bring his kingdom to earth and establish the reign of Jesus through the church in Rome. During that century, the Roman Catholic Church, centered in Rome, began to claim that she was the kingdom of God on earth. That dominated for a thousand years and it changed Europe and controlled European economy for the next thousand years. I would like you to envision why this happened. A feudal system of economics replaced the Roman Empire. The feudal system beginning in the late 400s, 500s, goes all the way up to the 1500s, and it was where you have lords who own all the property, but the vast majority of people live on the land as serfs. The serf system, the feudal system, that means you've got some people who own on the land. None of the serfs can own land. And for a thousand years, the vast majority of Europe lived in abject poverty. The two dominating forces, theological ideas that were negative influences, people believe that they are helpless sinners who are totally incapable of ruling themselves. And number two, God has given us the church to rule us, and the leaders of the church are the kingdom of God on earth. When the rulers in Rome redefine themselves as the church, preceding that period, the church said, we are the community of God's people, we're followers of Jesus. After Augustine's book is published, the church says, we are the leaders of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, to change your identity changes your behavior. When you are a community, your main energy is invested in helping your community and following the teachings of Jesus. When you now define yourself as the kingdom of God on earth, you now see yourself 
as responsible to rule the nations of the earth. And those who ruled from Rome took it upon themselves. And for the next thousand years, the word church and kingdom of God are equated. Any book you read for the next thousand years from that time period, if you see the word church, it's interchangeable with kingdom of God. Because they believed it's our job to enforce the king, Jesus' will on earth. That was thought of as a kingdom, though, is thought of as a violent entity. Therefore, she's defining herself as a violent ruling entity so she can justify the crusades. She can justify killing heretics. Why? Because you change your identity, you're going to act different. Understanding this identifies why it's so important that you and I identify what is the church today. Because how you identify it is going to determine how you act as a church. During this COVID season, most Christians had to redefine the church. They had time off. They were looking at the church at a distance, and they had to make choices whether I'm going to go back into church or not. And before they decided, they had to mistake, why do I even go to church? What is the purpose of church? And most of you made decisions in your mind whether to come back or not, and you had to decide, why do I go? For my wife and I, we belonged to a church that for a time, they set up outdoor meetings, and you had to sit in your car, turn on the radio, and listen to the preacher who's outside on the stage preaching. But waving each other from cars did not feel like church. One of the things we came out with, really convinced of, Church is not just the message. Church is touching each other, smiling at each other. It's having a community. It's having a people. It's belonging to something. And that the church is a community. And in fact, it's getting us back in touch with what did the church think of herself during the first 300 years rather than after Augustine's false teaching of all millennialism. No, what is the church? Is followers of Jesus and is a community that is meant to take care of each other. So now, for a thousand year period, the feudal economic system dominates Europe. And it's taught, and we can find the records of preaching throughout Europe during that thousand year period. The two most common messages preached from pulpits throughout Catholic Christendom during that period was one, the evils of pride and the evils of trying to get ahead in life. Number one message is being preached from pulpits for a thousand years. These two messages were preached more than anything. Why? Because the people had to be taught that it is wrong to try to break out of your caste system. Because it was sustaining a caste system where you've got serfs who own nothing and then you've got masters and lords who own all land. Now that continued that value system up until the plague in the 1300s. The plague wipes out about a third of Europe. But that opened the door for a new opportunity, a new way of thinking, a new economic system. When the plague happened, a third of Europe is removed. And now for the first time, there is a need for people to be hired. And people in cities began hiring serfs 
to come and work for a wage. They had never worked for wages before. The concept of wages was introduced back into European society in the 1400s. But now they had to fight a lot of contrary thoughts because we've got historically coming from the Greeks, the Romans, and Christianity through Judaism forming Western civilization. And for most of that first thousand years, Leaders were trying to combine the three ways of thinking and synchronize thoughts. But now you're starting to have to weed out what is truly Christian, what is Roman, and what is Greek. And one of the thoughts that had to be overcome in the 400s was thoughts that Plato and Aristotle inserted from the Greek culture that business and commerce was evil. Up until the 1400s, a value of Western civilization is that commerce and business is evil and no Christian would ever engage in something like that. That was another thing, keeping people in a caste system. No, you work with your hands in the soil or you're a Lord who owns all things. But now, a time in history when you can go to the city and get a wage because there's not enough people anymore. They're trying to offer serfs positions where they can now earn a wage. It was the introduction of capitalistic values. Now, when I say the word capitalistic, I have to be careful because the word capitalistic is a different defined word today than it was at that time and even preceding that time. Originally, capitalism came from the Old Testament. Now, it's not the capitalism of today, but capitalism's origin was established as God worked with the Hebrew people when they came into the promised land. God set up an economic system in Israel, in the promised land, where every family was to own a piece of property, and that piece of property was meant to provide for them. It was built on property ownership. Number two, God set up an economic system by which that property would only produce if the family, the individual, accepted responsibility to work. Each person was responsible to work, and you could own property. Now, that system continued with the Jews all the way throughout the Middle Ages, but Christianity didn't have it. Christianity was under the serf system. Nobody owned property except the lords and the kings. The only thing we can compare that surf system today to is communism. A system of thought built on no property ownership. But there was now being introduced back into society in the late 1400s, 1500s, the possibility to own land. Serfs could earn a wage and literally own something. That had not been around for a thousand years. As soon as you have people who can earn a wage and own something, you have a middle class. There was no middle class for 2,000 years. That's before Jesus, but into the Greek and Roman empires that had never been a middle class. But the first time a middle class arose since Judaism, when God created it in Israel, now it was rebirthed into this time period in the 1500s a middle class. Now, you hear some of these terms, but it depends on who you're listening today, whether they're anti-Christian 
or for Christian, but the concept of capitalism, not by the definition today, but the concept of capitalism came from God's forming an economic system for the Jews in the Old Testament. However, their economic system, God's economic system of capitalism, had certain safeguards. One of them being the 50-year jubilee. That every 50 years, all property returns to the original owner. You see, one of the drawbacks of our economic system, our capitalistic system, is you can pass on everything you accumulate for generation to generation to generation, and that creates a huge gap between the very, very rich and the very, very poor. That huge gap was never intended by God, and it was impossible in God's Jewish capitalistic system. In God's Jewish capitalist system, he put the safeguard of the 50-year jubilee. Now, but the capitalism that now is being rebuilt in Western civilization, there's some positives and there are some negatives. Capitalism allows people to work, and the harder they work, the more they'll be rewarded. Capitalism was introduced into European civilization in the 1500s and 1600s in that 200-year period Europe rose so quickly under the capitalistic system, within 200 years, it took control over half the earth. Capitalism allowed Europe to soar above the rest of the earth. Because the positive act of capitalism, the positive side of capitalism, is it allows people to reward it according to their labor, and that creates a movement in society to say, I'm going to labor. I'm going to go for it because I'm getting the products that I'm being produced. And within 200 years, Europe ruled. Now, there were some bad things that came out of that. Colonization of many of these places around the world. But if they had had God's value of Jubilee, colonization never would have happened because the land has to be given back to the people Again and again, but nor could you take land from anybody. You had to buy it, and even if you bought it, it had to go back to the original. In addition to having the year of Jubilee, the capitalism of the Bible is permeated with compassion and mercy for the poor. God's system had within it that that necessity that you take care and you think of yourselves in a community. The concept of capitalism today has taken to an extreme and primarily even Christian world has difficulties. And I'm trying to make a balance here that, that Christianity brought capitalism into civilization, but not, I don't want us to go to the extreme of what capitalism today and primarily that extreme, the most dangerous part of it is people take a scripture, Christians do, that you should, the righteous give an inheritance to their children's children. You've heard that before, right? That's a scripture in Proverbs, which many Christians take to mean, I should accumulate during my life, and then everything I accumulate, I should hand off to my children and my grandchildren. Okay, that's not what was meant by that verse. To Hebraic thought, to hand an inheritance was to hand to your grandchildren and your children the ability to take care of themselves. 
The word inheritance to them is different than legacy. It, we confuse the words, but here in Ecclesiastic, where the word legacy is used, it says here, chapter 2, verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with him, this to his vanity and a great evil. The legacy, as it's defined there, is everything you accumulate using your wisdom, your skill, your labor. All that you gain, you accumulate, that's the legacy that you can hand off. And it says, if you give that to someone who doesn't know how to work, that's a great evil. Now, giving an inheritance is giving the ability that you can make a living and take care of yourself. Giving a legacy is evil. According to the Bible. And it's not just evil, it's a great evil. Now, I like to think, what is evil and what's great evil? I could use terms like, well, murder's evil. Mass murder is great evil. Sex trafficking is great evil. Yeah, mass murder, sex trafficking, and giving a legacy is great evils in the earth today. And many Christians don't know the difference between the capitalism of the Bible and the capitalism that's being promoted today. And they are making huge errors by giving their legacy to the next generation who don't know how to work. And that is like cursing your grandchildren and the children generations after you. You are to give them no the ability to work. And if they cannot even work, you give them nothing. These are the value system. What are the values that Christianity has brought? Well, in order to teach this, I have to say, yes, capitalism came from Christianity. But I want to define it clearly, saying it's not the capitalism of today. The capitalism today has too many open-ended deals that is actually hurting society. And if we would go and manage it the way the capitalism of the Jewish people was, we would have a capitalism that literally is accelerating society. Now, what else has been contributed? Let's go back to God's nature. Um, Think of what's going on coming from God's nature. God is a just God. Just as much as Odin, being a god of war, caused the Vikings to be warlike people, The concept of God being a just God causes Western civilization to believe in justice. Now, this has far-reaching implications for today. Consider what's going on in Russia and Ukraine today. You see, Russia is the greater power. Russia has weapons of mass destruction and nuclear bombs. If Russia wanted to, they could crush Ukraine. But if they did... The entire world would rise up and say that's wrong. Now, Putin could do it anyway, but the world has a value that it's wrong to use overwhelming force to destroy another nation. Where did the world get that value? You see, it certainly didn't get it from atheism. Now, It didn't get it from back in the Greek and Roman Empire. In fact, what was valued back in Greek and Roman Empire was to crush your enemy as much as you could. 
often genocides would be taking place. It was admirable to be someone like Alexander the Great, who murdered more than a million people for no other reason than his own passion to conquer. Unprovoked by anybody, murders more than a million people. They was idolized. Back at that time in history, there was no value of saying what's called a fair war. The concept of justice not only was in the God of Abraham, but in the New Testament, Jesus enriches us on the concept of compassion and mercy, but he still furthers the concept of God's justice because Christianity further emphasizes that God is going to render to every person according to their deeds. That's a standard that exists in Christianity. It exists in the God of Abraham, which over half the earth claims is the true God, but even more so within Christianity. Oh, man. (sighs) I haven't even got to my best parts. Things I really wish people could see. Let me try here. Um, You see, in Christianity, this, this justice concept, it's stated in many verses. For example, one of the most profound ones is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, Today, if you say an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, people who ridicule Christianity misunderstand that, and they will say eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's foolish, because if you enforce that, everybody on earth is going to be blind. Okay, that's one of the ridicules of that statement. Now, I want you to put yourself in the context of why God said an eye for an eye for an eye. It was at a time in history that if one tribe was offended by another tribe, they would come and wipe out the whole tribe. At that time in history, when God said that, people were living like the modern-day cartel. If you steal something from a cartel, some drugs, they'll kill you, your kids, your grandkids, and your parents, and your grandparents. They'll kill everybody, okay? It was at a time in history when tribes were wiping out tribes that God said, eye for an eye, two for two. It was meant to limit violence. It was meant at a time in history to knock it off. That is, makes no sense. The concept of an eye for an eye worked throughout Western civilization in our justice system. And it didn't come in the time of Rome because in the time of the Rome, there was no punishment equals the crime. The eye for an eye developed into the punishment must match the crime as a Christian ethic, that was never in the Babylonians, the Greeks, or the Roman Empire. They crucified hundreds of thousands of people. Crucifixion never matches the crime to the punishment. No, the value for crucifying people was, no, we must make an example of them and send terror into humanity so they will, humanity will never do what they did. There was no concept of we should make our punishment match the crime. That entered into civilization through Christianity. And your justice system today is a result of Christianity conquering Greek and Roman thought. 
And there was a war, and there were a lot of leaders who throughout history actually labored through these theological issues to say, we have to stop treating criminals this way because of the standard that God is a just God, and Jesus Christ is the one who is bringing justice. And by the way, it's possible for forgiveness. The standard, even today, not just of punishment must match the crime, but the idea of treating all people equally. I'll probably have to make this one my last one. If you understand the Hebraic Jewish ethic that all people are creating the image of God, if you have that standard, well, the ultimate conclusion, the logical conclusion of that is you must treat all people with equal dignity. Contrast that now with the atheistic evolutionary theory. Let's say you have drawn your understanding of human nature not from the Bible, but from atheistic evolutionary theory. If you have, atheistic evolution means God's not involved, but you are the product of random mutation and natural selection. Natural selection is working on mutations, and that's who you are. Now, if you are a product of atheistic evolution, evolution without God, there's another logical step. It means that there are always differences within any society. Because evolution, by its very definition, is mutating and being selected every day of the year, all throughout all of time. Therefore, through every population, there's always some people more advanced than others. The whole system is based on people are advancing at different rates. That's what evolution is built on. Therefore, in every population on earth, if you believe evolution without God involved, you will logically conclude some people are more advanced than others. See, this is the foundation of Hitler's thought. Hitler was building on the foundation, know that we are the product of evolution without God. And therefore, what's the logical conclusion? That there are some races better than other races. That is the logical conclusion of atheistic evolution. And they decide the Aryan race is more advanced. That is the logical conclusion, that one race is better than another race. If you believe you got here by evolution, it is logical that you believe some people are more advanced than others. Therefore, it is logical to discriminate. In fact, it's illogical not to discriminate if you believe you came here by evolution. You logically must discriminate. And because you are a product of evolution, it is the dehumanization of all the people that we're all just animals. It is the acceptance of the fact that you are inconsequential. And for that very reason, atheistic evolution, like I jotted down some of my numbers here, communism during the last century, Stalin had 20 million, over 20 million of his people killed. Mao Zedong, more than 70 million. Pot Pol in, in Vietnam and Cambodia, more than 1.5 million. Soviet dictators like Lenin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev. They had add on to their numbers, add on Fidel Castro, the atheist, kill Jong-il, the atheist, more than 100 million of their own people 
were murdered by atheists in the last century. That's more than a million a year. For no other reason than that their politics differed from the leader's politics. More than a million a year were killed by atheistic people who believe that you came here by mutations and natural selections. But realize their thoughts are logical. If you arrived only because of random mutation and natural selection acting upon that, then you are inconsequential. And it is irrational to feel guilty about killing people. It is irrational not to be a racist if you believe evolutionary theory. Amen. Come on, call it. The only foundation for a standard for treating all humanity equally that has ever been proposed in human civilization is that which is written in the Bible that all people are created equal. No other standard has ever been promoted nor presented to any culture on earth than that culture, than that standard for humanity. Now, I could go on for a couple more hours on things that Christianity has contributed to society. You don't even realize how deeply your society has formed from Christian values. They are so deeply ingrained in us that they're a part of us. Most people in America can't conceive if they, even if they don't honor God, the God that they don't believe in is a God of justice. Because where did that concept of God being a just God? Well, it's only in the Abrahamic tradition that God's a just God. There's no other tradition that has a God who's just. In fact, there's no other religious tradition where God is cared about what humans do. It's only Christianity that created the society that you live in. To think that Christianity has had more detrimental influence is just foolishness. It's just ridiculous. The very reason that you have peace and order, the very reason that we have a system of justice, that we even have a reason to love cross races, that we are determined to have a standard that we're all creating the image of God is because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Jesus Christ. We all stand up. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Father, I don't think we know how much you've given us already. I don't think us who are a product of your thoughts back to Abraham have realized how your thoughts are permeating every thought we have. Your thoughts have infiltrated our civilization and we don't even know how much order you've brought to the earth just by revealing who you are. Father, the continual declaration of who you are in the earth across pulpits across this nation, across pulpits across the earth, 
Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself and continue to proclaim your nature. Proclaim who you are because it is the realization of who you are that is our hope to live as people who love one another. It comes from you, God. It all comes from you. We embrace it from you and we thank you, God, for sending Jesus who completes the picture with his love and his compassion, who completes the picture with the opportunity for forgiveness and reward. Thank you, mighty, mighty God. Would you look at somebody next to you and just say, hey, I love you. You're creating the image of God. You're a God creature. You're a child of the living God. We have good news to declare to you. God came to earth. He didn't leave us alone. He came to earth to create civilization. His thoughts are changing civilization. Whether we know it or not, his thoughts have formed civilization. And the best part of civilization is that which came from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his revelation. We worship a good God. We worship a wonderful God. We worship God who cares for us. We worship a God who it breaks his heart when people don't love each other because we're his kids. Anything else, Lord? I guess you guys are up here. I like to minister prophetically over people. Um, I also like to limit it. So um, I'm going to limit it while they do worship and close. I'm going to go over here. Nobody volunteers themselves. I don't want you to be selfish. I want, do you know somebody in the room that needs a word from God? I want you to go get them, bring them up, stand behind them and bring it to me. And I'm going to limit to seven people. I'll just quit prophesying after seven people. But you know somebody in the room, they need a word from God. Well, we're worshiping. We just bring them up here and we'll see. But stand behind your person and we'll see what the Lord would say to them. Praise God. Bless you. I know. I, 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 I hope, hope we understand what's been handed to us today. To be able to give an explanation of the hope that is in us. The hope that is in us. Wow. Uh, two real quick things. One, uh, please take advantage of his books. He has a number of them back there. And yes, you will have to read it several times. And you'll get stopped at certain places in the book and you'll have to think. But please take advantage of those. Uh, And also tonight, Ignite is at 530. 530. And uh, though you're not registered, you're welcome to come tonight. There is a a fee that's involved with, with coming into the class because all those that are in the class have, have paid fees to be there. Uh, but it will be worth it. If you want to hear more of this and more of what uh, comes out of this man's heart uh, and uh, out of his ability to process thought, uh, you will want to take advantage of it. It's 5.30 and it's in the hangar. So 5.30 in the hangar if you want to be a part of that tonight. And now let's, uh, it, it's time to really bless the messenger and the message that's come into our house today. So we're going to receive an offering for 
uh, for Harold and Linda and their ministry. You saw in some pictures what they're doing around the world, but you also were impacted today. And as we invest in, in this this morning, we're invested in the man and the message. We invest in what he's doing in places around the world. And the message becomes ours when we invest in it. So I'm encouraging you to be generous in your offering this morning. There are giving stations. There are also, uh, the, the chest is open down here. You can come deposit. You know how to give. Part of the house, you know how to do this. But let's be tremendously generous to these that have come and deposited this great gift into our hand this morning. So, you ready to give? Yeah? How many of you are stunned in the moment? Yeah. Me too. Me too. A good kind of stunned, right? So let's, let's, let's be generous. Father, thank you for what you're doing in us and what you've done in us this morning and the places you've ignited in us to know the hope that's in us and to be able to stand in our generation and declare the things that are truth. And so we now invest in that because you are good. You are so good. And we've been reminded of that today. So thank you, Father. Amen. All right, so as the worship team kicks it off, let's get some given music here. God bless you. Listen, please go get your children. If you have children in the, in the other room, please go get your children. Ministry team, if you'll go ahead and come on down here, please. If you need somebody to pray with you this morning, please come. We'd love to pray with you uh, for health or for relationships. Just need somebody to agree with you in prayer. Please take advantage of that. God bless you. Have a great day. Love to see you tonight, 530, in the hangar. Make sure and find a giving station before you leave this morning or do it online. God bless you.